and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. The Spirit of God is moving upon His people and He is raising up a generation that is prepared for power that will touch this world. You are now listening to The Last Day's Return of the Historic Faith with your host, Pastor Jeremy Anderson and Brother Matthew Marcel. This podcast is for the Kingdom Christian in the end times. As aliens in a foreign land and ambassadors of our king, we proudly fly the flag with the cross as we sing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What the early Christians believed concerning Israel. If a person walks into a typical Christian bookstore today, and glances, he'll find countless books about Israel. These books will describe in great detail how various Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled in the establishment of the modern country of Israel. They'll also describe in detail exactly what's going to happen to modern Israel in the near future. But are those books correct? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight and tomorrow night as well. Tonight we're going to be primarily focusing on what the early Christians and the scriptures have to say about Israel. And if time permits, we're also going to look at some of the Old Testament prophecies about Israel. And actually in the past, that's as far as as I went on this subject. However, in response to my previous messages on Israel, my listeners have asked a lot of questions such as, yeah, David, but what about this verse? And what about this passage over here? So I want to address some of these valid questions that have been asked me. And I also want to go into a little bit of detail. It'll be brief, but at least a a sketch somewhat of the establishment of the modern-day country of Israel. Now, most of that will be tomorrow night that we talk about those things. Okay, to get started, let me just tell you in a nutshell what the early Christians uniformly believed about Israel, which can be summarized in three points. Point number one, because of the Jews' unfaithfulness, God has rejected the fleshly nation of Israel. He has taken their kingdom from them and given it to another. That's point one. Point two, because of Israel's rejection of God, his prophets, and his son, God has had to raise up children of Abraham from among the Gentiles as well as from among a remnant of the Jews who do believe. Together, The believing Gentiles and the believing Jews constitute the Israel of God. The kingdom of God has been given to them. That's point two. Point number three, in some way, in some time in the future, 
there will be a turning back to God on the part of either the majority of the Jews or at least a remnant of them. Now, if you're like most Bible-believing Christians today, you've already mentally skipped to point number three, and you've tended to ignore points one and two. However, let me tell you this. You're never going to arrive at a proper biblical understanding of Israel unless you grasp all three of these points. We can never get to point three, which is where everyone seems to want to be, until points one and two have been fulfilled. And I think the witness of the early church can help us considerably in this regard, can put a lot of the things that are written today maybe in a little bit different perspective. So now I want to read to you some passages from the early Christians that are going to deal with point one, God's rejection of Israel. And perhaps you're going to find these a little grating. If you've already, in your mind, just focused on point three, the return of Israel to God, you're going to find what they say very harsh, very irritating. But then we're going to go look at the scriptures that are absolutely just as harsh, just as direct, just as candid as anything the early Christians say. So let's begin. Let's start with Justin Martyr, writing about the year 160. Incidentally, you can find these quotations in uh, my work, A Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs, under two uh, headings. One is going to be uh, Israel, and one is going to be Jew or Jews. And you'll not only find the ones I'm reading to you, but, but many more besides. And so I'd encourage you to look there. If you don't have the dictionary, but you have the Anti-Nicene Fathers, I'm going to give you the pages that I'm reading from, so you can go and look these up and read the whole context of them. Okay, now, in this passage from Justin Martyr, which is found in Volume 1, page 269, Justin is speaking to a Jew, and he says, The Jews beguile, that means deceive, themselves and you, for they suppose that the everlasting kingdom will be assuredly given to those of the dispersion who are of Abraham after the flesh, even though they are sinners, are faithless, and are disobedient towards God. However, the scriptures have proved this is not the case. Otherwise, our Lord would not have said, they will come from the east and from the west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. All right, this next passage is from Irenaeus, written about the year 170, maybe 180. Volume 1, page 515, we read, Inasmuch as the former, talking about the Jews, have rejected the Son of God and cast him out of the vineyard where, when they slew him, God has justly rejected them. He has given to the Gentiles outside the vineyard the fruits of its cultivation. All right, Clement of Alexandria, writing about the year 195. You can find this in volume 2, page 256. I don't remember if I gave you the uh, citation on Irenaeus. It's volume 1, page 515. Anyway, Clement says this, 
The Lord was not known by the people who erred, for they were not circumcised in understanding. Their darkness was not enlightened. They knew not God, and they denied the Lord, so they forfeited the place of the true Israel. Tertullian, writing about the year 197, which is in volume 3, page 152, says, Thus has the lesser people, that is the elder people, overcome the greater people. For the lesser have acquired the grace of divine favor from which Israel has been divorced. And again, Tertullian, volume 3, page 247, the Jews had formerly been in covenant with God, but being afterwards cast off on account of their sins, they began to be without God. Hippolytus, writing about the year 205, from volume 5, page 202. However, he does not say that the Jews are to, are to be cut off. For that reason, their race still subsists and the succession of their children is continued. <clears throat> okay, so he did not say the Jews would be annihilated and would disappear as a people. However, they continue only as those who have been rejected and cast down from the honor of which of old they were deemed worthy by God. Okay, this next passage is from Origen, written about the year 248. You can find this in volume 4, page 508 of the early Christian writings, where he says, We take our stand against the Jews on those scriptures that they believe to be divine, which show that he who was spoken of in prophecy has come, and that they have been abandoned on account of the greatness of their sins. And again, he says, volume 4, page 614, Since the coming of Christ, no prophets have arisen among the Jews, for they have confessedly been abandoned by the Holy Spirit because of their impiety towards God and towards Him, talking about Jesus, of whom their prophets spoke. Now, I know these uh, probably sound a bit repetitive, but I want you to listen to all of these so that you can see for yourselves this is what they all believed. You're not going to find anybody outside some of the heretical groups who believe anything different. Cyprian, writing about the year 250, volume 5, page 451, says, But the children of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's quoting from Scripture there. In fact, a lot of what I read to you are quotations from Scripture in, inside these uh, passages from the early church. Anyway, Cyprian continues. <clears throat> he shows that the Jews were previously children of the kingdom so long as they continued also to be children of God. However, after the name of the Father ceased to be recognized among them, the kingdom also ceased. Just two more. Lactantius, writing in the early 300s, volume 7, page 123, says, Having suffered death for us, Christ made us heirs of his everlasting kingdom, the people of the Jews being deprived and disinherited. However, it is plain that the house of Judah does not signify the Jews whom he cast off. Rather, it signifies us, who have been called by him out of the Gentiles and have succeeded to their place by adoption, and they are called sons of the Jews. 
And finally, from the Apostolic Constitutions, compiled around the year 390, this is in volume 7, page 451, it says, The wicked synagogue is now cast off by the Lord God. He has rejected his own house. As he says, quoting from scripture, I have forsaken my house, I have left my inheritance. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourselves, well, that's awful, that's anti-Semitic, what the early Christians were saying. But we're going to see now that what they said is absolutely no stronger than what's in scripture. They've added nothing to the scriptures at all. As you've heard me say many times, if you want to know what the early Christians believed on any subject, read the New Testament, take the totality of all verses dealing with that passage in the New Testament, give them a very serious and literal interpretation, and you're going to arrive at what the early Christians believed. And it's no different on the subject of Israel. So now let's look at some of the verses that many churches today just, just pass over. They pretend that they're not there, even though they're so plain. Start with Matthew 8, verses 8 through 12, which I believe it was Tertullian cited uh, just in the quotation I read to you just a few minutes ago. We read, this, this is the centurion who had the uh, a servant who was uh, very ill. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west these would be the Gentiles, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, that's the Jews, will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, from Jesus again, Matthew 21, verses 33 through 43. He says, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected 
has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now here we have Jesus himself out of his own mouth telling us in language that is so plain, I don't see how we could not see it, that the kingdom was going to be taken from the Jews and given to another people who would produce uh, the fruits of it. That the sons of the kingdom would be cast into outer darkness. We're looking at quite a few other passages because this isn't a matter of proof texting, of picking a verse here and there and trying to put something together. It's a matter of looking at what the New Testament says, what all the verses say on this subject. Okay, Matthew 22, verses 2 through 9, we read, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and went their way, one to his own farm, another to do uh, to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Is there any guess who he's talking about there? These, of course, are the Jews, the, the Israelites, who were the first to receive the invitation. The invitation was given to them. In fact, it was given to them alone during the days of Jesus. But as he said, they didn't want to come to the feast. It was something wonderful God was offering them, and they refused to come. And the kill continues and says, But when the king heard about it, he was furious. Now, who's the king? Well, that's God. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Any question what he's talking about there? That Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans? Tens of hundreds of thousands, maybe as many as a million Jews, were put to death or sold into slavery. It says, then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Do you see how plain the scriptures are on this? And we see, we can never get to the point where we can talk about the restoration of Israel until we see very plainly how completely and strongly that God rejected them, how heinous their crime was against God. All right, Matthew 23, verses 31 through 39. And again, I'm sorry if this gets a little tedious. I know it's hard to just sit and, and listen to uh, one scripture after another being read, but... I want this point to be driven home so firmly that you're not going to be able to walk away tonight and say, well, I don't know if that's really what the scriptures say. 
Matthew 23, 31 through 39, here Jesus is talking to the, primarily to the religious leaders of the Jews. He says, You are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Now, the early Christians never spoke that frankly, did they? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Then on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, let's move on to John 8, verses 20 through to 24, where we read, The Jews said, Will he kill himself because he says, Where I go, you cannot come? And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. I've moved up to now verse 39. I'm going to read just a few select verses to 47. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear, because you are not of God. So, Jesus was very direct on this point. Can anyone hear those passages and still believe that God did not reject the fleshly nation of Israel, did not cast them out of the kingdom, <clears throat> that condemnation did not come upon them? Let's go to the book of Romans. And we're going to go back to Romans later on and look at the passages about a return to faith on the part of Israel. But we can't get to those passages until we read what came before it. Romans 9, verses 30 through chapter 10, verse 4, we read, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel... Pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, 
but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10, verses 20 and 21. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. That's talking about the Gentiles. But to Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Finally, I want to read 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 14 through 16. And again, this is Paul. You, brethren, also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. It's not a matter of being anti-Semitic, of, of hating Jews or anything like that. It's a matter of being honest. What do the scriptures say? They say that wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So the early Christians were right on target in believing that God had rejected the Jews and taking the kingdom from them. So where is the kingdom of God now? Well, if you haven't already done so, I would encourage you to listen to my message on the two kingdoms that I delivered some time back. Because unless you grasp the fundamental Christian truth about the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, you'll never grasp what I'm about to share you with you concerning the Israel of God. And I think that's why there's so much confusion today and why so many professing Bible-believing Christians have such a skewed view of Israel because they've never grasped the fundamental teaching of the two kingdoms. Now, I want to read to you what the early Christians had to say about the true Israel, the Israel of God, the kingdom that Jesus said would be taken from the Jews and given to a people willing to produce its fruit. And this is the Israel of God. So I'm going to read to you some uh, passages. I'll start with Barnabas, which may be the earliest writing we have outside of the New Testament. It's, it's one of the earliest for sure. Some dated as early as the year 70. No one dates it later than 130 that I'm aware of. Find this in volume 1, page 145 of the early Christian writings. He says, let us see if this people, the Christians, are the heirs, or if it is the former, the Jews. Let us see if the covenant belongs to us or to them. 
And then he goes on to, to show that it belongs to us. We are the people of the covenant. All of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, whether we are Gentiles or Jew in the flesh. The earliest sermon we have that's uh, usually called Second Clement, dating to about the year 150, says this, When he said, Rejoice, you barren one who bears not, he referred to us. He's talking about the Gentiles. For our church was barren before children were given to her. And when he said, For she that is desolate has many more children than she that has a husband, quoting again from Scripture, he meant that our people seemed to be outcast from God, but now, through believing, have become more numerous than those who are considered to possess God. 7, page 517. Justin Martyr, volume 1, page 180, says, Christians from among the Gentiles are both more numerous and more true than those from among the Jews and Samaritans. So the kingdom is made up of Gentiles, Samaritans, and Jews alike, but the majority were Gentiles. He said they're more true because one of the uh, early Christian heresies, one of the heresies of the early church, uh, were the Ebionites and other groups similar to them who were Jews who accepted Jesus only as their Messiah, but not as the divine Son of God. All right, Justin Martyr again, volume 1, page 200. For the true spiritual Israel and descendants of Judah, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, who in uncircumcision was approved of and blessed by God on account of his faith and called the father of many nations, are we who have been led to God through this crucified Christ. <clears throat> Volume 1, page 264. By these words, he declares that we, the nations, rejoice with his people. For his people... Quoting from Scripture, now he says... And blessed by God on account of his faith, and called the father of many nations are we who have been led to God through this crucified Christ. <clears throat> Volume 1, page 264. By these words, he declares that we, the nations, rejoice with his people. For his people are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets, and in short, all people who are well-pleasing to God. There is neither Jew nor Greek. All people who believe in Jesus Christ are now the people of God. They make up the kingdom of, of God. They are the Israel of God. As Justin Martyr says on, on page 265 of volume 1, those who were selected out of every nation have obeyed his will through Christ. So then, as I mentioned fully before, these persons must be Jacob and Israel. It's not a matter of giving it a figurative interpretation. It's a matter of giving it a literal one. We are Israel, we who believe in Jesus Christ. Irenaeus, uh, volume, four, two, excuse me, volume 1, page 471, God introduces Abraham to the kingdom of heaven through Jesus Christ. He also introduces Abraham's seed, that is the church. For upon it were conferred the adoption and the inheritance promised to Abraham. Now again, 
When we get through with these passages, we're going to see what the scriptures say. And I'm going to show to you that they're saying absolutely nothing different than what the scriptures say. If these concepts are new to you that you're hearing from the early church, it's because wherever you have been hearing the gospel preached, there are a lot of passages that apparently have never been taught to you because just like the passages on rejection that are so plain, the passages that we all make up the Israel of God, the true Israel, are just as plain. On page 484, Irenaeus again right. Malachi, who was among the twelve prophets, meaning the twelve minor prophets, spoke beforehand in this manner. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord Omnipotent, and I will not accept sacrifice at your hands. For from the rising of the sun unto the going down, my name is glorified among the Gentiles. And in every place incense is offered to my name and a pure sacrifice. For great is my name among the Gentiles, says the Lord Omnipotent. And that's quoting from Scripture from Malachi. Okay, Irenaeus says, here he stated in the, in the plainest manner by these words that the former people, the Jews, will indeed cease to make offerings to God, but that in every place sacrifice will be offered to him and it will be a pure sacrifice. All right, Origen, writing about the year 225, it's in volume 4, page 327, many of the present Egyptians and Idumeans who came near to Israel will enter into the church of the Lord, being no longer considered as Egyptians and Idumeans, but as having become Israelites. So they so identified with being the seed of Abraham that they thought of themselves as Israelites. And when you read the early Christian writings, you notice that they generally refer to the world, to the unbelieving ones, in the population as being Gentiles. In other words, they were Israel and these unbelievers were Gentiles is how they understood and saw things. Cyprian, writing about the year 250, writes, In the Gospel we find that children of Abraham are raised from stones, that is, gathered from the Gentiles. You can find that in volume 5, page 359. Two more, one short one. Our ancestors were the patriarchs of the Hebrews. This is from Lactantius, by flesh a Gentile, but like other Christians, he saw himself as being of the seed of Abraham. And he looked at them not as the ancestors of somebody else, but as his ancestor. This is my ancestor. I'm from Abraham. I don't know if I gave you the sight on that. It's volume 7, page 108, if I didn't. Okay, finally, from the Apostolic Constitutions, volume 7, page 445, we read, To you, the converted Gentiles, is opened the gate of life. You were formerly not loved, but you are now beloved, a people ordained for the possession of God. So I think it's clear how they saw things, that they saw themselves as being the true Israel, being the Israel of God. Now let's look at the scriptures. Why did they believe this way? What do the scriptures have to say? Now a lot of the passages I just read to you were quoting from the Old Testament. And I want to read three of the prophecies that they 
make mention of quite often, not just in the quotes that I've read here, but, but uh, all throughout their writings. One is Haggai 2.7, which says, I will shake all nations, and they will come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory. Now, when the scriptures talk about the nations, it's, it's always referring to the Gentile nations, the, the non-Jewish nations, that they would come in and fill the temple. Micah chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 is, is quoted many times by the early Christians. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And they saw this being fulfilled, that the apostles had come out from Jerusalem. They had been sent out from Jerusalem to all the nations and invited people to come up to the house of the Lord. And then Malachi 1.11, From the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name will be great among the Gentiles. So those were the Old Testament prophecies that they universally understood to be being fulfilled in them, the Gentiles, the Israel of God. Now let's see what the New Testament says about any such thing, about Gentiles being able to be the Israel of God. Is that possible or is that something the early Christians made up? Well, first let's go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, that Cyprian alluded to in the quote I just read to you. There John the Baptist says, Do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So God wasn't limited to raising up children to Abraham from the fleshly Jews because John the Baptist said he could even do it from the stones if he wanted to. If he can do it from stones, he can certainly do it from Gentile people. So any thought we would have that, oh, God is limited that the only descendants of Abraham have to be people genetically descended from Abraham, well, the scriptures show that that's not true. In fact, when we read the Old Testament, we find that quite a lot of the people who came in and joined Israel were not descendants of Abraham in the flesh, but they became people of the faith and became Jews even though they were not natural descendants of Abraham. So if they could become Jews then in the Old Testament, they can certainly uh, become so today that we Gentiles can become Jews. We can become Israelites in being the seed of Abraham. And then we, I read to you earlier from Jesus where he told the Jews, you say, well, they told him, we have Abraham as our father. He said, no, your father is the devil. So let, let's get that clear right from the outset the scriptures make that, I think, very clear that God is not limited to the fleshly Israelites to fulfill his promises to Abraham, that he can and has 
raised up children to Abraham from people outside of Israel, of fleshly Israel. Paul brings this about and uh, explains this further in Romans. Romans chapter 2, verse uh, 28 and 29, he said, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. So he shows that being a Jew doesn't have anything to do with being circumcised, doesn't have anything to do with the flesh, with anything outward. It has to do with something inward, having the same faith that Abraham did. Now the New International Version is not even a mistranslation. To me, it's being very dishonest with God's Word. It says, For he is not a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Making it say, Oh, well, to be a Jew, you have to first be a Jew. Um, but then you have to be one inwardly as well. See, he says, he, Paul doesn't say that. That who is one merely outwardly or outwardly only, but rather that he is not one who is one outward. So what we're seeing is the early Christians didn't make something up. They had every right to think of themselves as Jews, to think of Abraham as being their patriarch, their forefather, because Paul tells us that he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Again, Paul says in Romans 9, 6 and 7, he says, They are not all Israel who are of Israel, that would be of the flesh, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. So again, he makes it clear that Israel is not limited to fleshly descendants of Abraham. Again, in Galatians, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. See, if we are Christ, then we are the seed of Abraham. We are Israel. We are Jews. He says, and heirs according to the promise. So we're the ones who receive that promise. Again, that's Galatians 3, 28 and 29. Again, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 24 through 31, he says, For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, that would be from Hagar, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is as in, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Oh, now he tells us there's another Jerusalem. One that is free. We shouldn't be looking at the earthly Jerusalem. It's in bondage, he says. No, there's a heavenly one. That's what we should be concerned with. He says, for it is written, Rejoice, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Quoting from Scripture. Now he says, now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. And he's talking to Gentiles. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, that is, 
Ishmael persecuting Isaac. He says, even so, it is now. Because the ones from the flesh, the Jews, were persecuting God's people of the Spirit. Nevertheless, Paul continues, what does the Scripture say? It says, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. He says the fleshly Jews are the children of the bondwoman. They're in bondage. So you see how what appears with the eyes has changed? That the ones who boast of being Abraham's seed are in fact not Abraham's seed, he says. And those who were cast off formerly are now beloved. And they're the heirs of the promise. Again, he says in Galatians 6, 15 and 16, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't, doesn't mean anything. But a new creation, that's what counts. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So he makes a distinction there between fleshly Israel that he has described as being in bondage. He talks about the Israel of God. So see, the early Christians weren't off base when they believed they were the Israel of God. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews, and we're not going to read it tonight, but I encourage you to go back and read that. It shows how these, this new Israel, the Israel of God, it has its own high priest, it doesn't need priests any longer, earthly priests, because it has a high priest who is immortal. It has one sacrifice for all time. We don't need to go back and, and offer sacrifices anymore. That's all done with. And everything else that was in old Israel, all of that, he says, were shadows of the things to come. The reality is now. None of that. Quoting from Scripture. Now he says, The flesh is the Scripture. Bondage. Serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So he says, this, We are now, we are receiving a kingdom. The same kingdom that Jesus says was taken away from the Israelites. I think the reality of the fact that we Christians are the Israel of God is particularly borne out by Peter's first let letter. Let me show you what I mean. He starts off, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. The Greek there would be diaspora. Now that was the term that was used to describe the fleshly Jews who were scattered, the ones who were not in Palestine, but it were scattered throughout uh, the ancient world. They're called the Jews of the dispersion or the di diaspora. And now Peter is addressing the pilgrims of the diaspora. Now, our first thought would be, okay, so his letter is going to his fleshly Jews because Peter himself was a fleshly Jew. However, the rest of the letter makes it clear that, no, he's talking to the Gentiles. Let me read to you from uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. He says, You also... As living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices 
acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, he's talking about the Jews, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So they were appointed to it, but as a nation they were disobedient, not as to individuals. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now, when he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, those were the words that had been spoken to the ancient Israelites, the fleshly Israelites. That had been said to them, this is what they were supposed to be. But as a nation, they never fulfilled it. So I don't know how more dramatically Peter could make it clear that Israel now are the people of God, the people who have the faith of Abraham, that they are now the royal priesthood, the holy nation. Whether they are Jew or Gentile, it makes no difference. So this is a reality. It's not, oh, figuratively, the church is Israel. No, it's nothing figurative about it. In reality, those who are truly born again are Israel, are Jews, are the heirs of the promises made to Abraham. And this is, I think, even further brought home by a passage in Revelation that, uh, very interesting, Revelation 3, verse 9, Jesus is, is speaking, he says, he's, he's talking to uh, one of the seven churches, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Boy, how much more dramatic could you say it? They say they are Jews, but they're not. They lie. Well, they were certainly fleshly Jews, but the word Jew means something praised. He says they lie because they are not praised by God. They not only rejected Jesus Christ, but they did everything in their power to prevent the word from going out to other Jews and to the Gentiles. He calls them a synagogue of Satan. A few years ago when I was in Honduras, I was driving through a, a town and I saw a church there and uh, the name was in Spanish. I don't remember the exact name, but it was something about the, the new Israel. I, I could uh, read enough to understand what it was saying. And I was kind of curious because I've noted down there, it seems like almost every group 
that exists anywhere in the United States, you'll find down there in a very small concentration because all the missionaries go there. I assume it's the same for uh, other Latin American countries. I'd never heard of that, that church, so I asked the uh, brother I was with, uh, what kind of group is that? And, and he kind of chuckled and said, oh, <laughs> they, they uh, imagine that, that they are Israel, that they're the Israel of God. And you know, he's kind of chuckling as he said it. He said, I guess they've never read their Bible. Well, I wasn't interested in getting into a long debate about that. But uh, I thought, no, the chuckling should be the other way. Those people weren't imagining anything. That this is, in fact, what Christians historically believed. And we've seen it so clear in Scripture that we are Israel. And that Jesus wasn't even willing to accept the fleshly Jews calling themselves Jews. He said they lie because they are not praised of God. Okay, so that, the first two points I said of what the early church believed, one, that the Jews as a nation had been rejected. Number two, that the people of God, born-again believers, whether Jew or Gentile, are the Israel of God. They're the heirs of the promise. They're the true seed of Abraham. And I think both of these points we see are solidly founded in Scripture. The third point is that there will be, or perhaps will be, at some time in the future, a repentance on the part of Israel and a return to God. Now, I want to read the Bible passages in the New Testament that that view is based on. We're going to look at the scriptures first. I'm going to show you what the early church had to say about those passages, and we're going to discuss them a bit in detail. The first one is Luke 21, 23, and 24, where Jesus, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and maybe beyond that. He says, There will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, talking about the Jews, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. Well, this is, I think, certainly talking about the destruction of earthly Jerusalem. He says, And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, Everything else that Jesus said, he talked about the Jews being cast off, the kingdom would be taken from them, given to a people producing the fruit of it. But now he, he mentions something that he never explains. And it's not even in the three other Gospels, only in Luke. About until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, that Jerusalem will be trampled on. So it, it gives an indication that there is a period called the times of the Gentiles. Now, what will, an- what will happen when that ends? He doesn't say. He doesn't say the Jews would return to God. He certainly doesn't say the kingdom would return to them or anything like that. He just says it will be trampled by Gentiles until the Gentile times are fulfilled. And, of course, one question I think we have to reasonably ask is, is he talking only about earthly Jerusalem? Is this fulfilled in earthly Jerusalem? Or, what we've just seen later in the New Testament, heavenly Jerusalem. 
the Jerusalem above? We don't know because there is no explanation given in Scripture. The early church, and I probably commented on this a number of times, they don't dwell a lot on prophecy. They dwell on what is clear in Scripture. And the parts that are unclear, they, they often say very little about, even rarely quote, because we don't know. Very different from the attitude I see today where people will write big, long books about various books of the Bible, things that aren't the least bit clear, and they pride themselves into thinking, yeah, they've got it all mapped out, and this means this and that. I mean, I grew up a Jehovah's Witness, and, and oh boy, they had every verse in every book of the Bible all mapped out. And of course, every 20 years they had to totally rewrite it and all that because what they said didn't come about. But that's never... Uh, slowed them down from going right on thinking that they've got everything mapped out and I hate to say it but I think a lot of evangelicals are not a whole lot better they, they seem to have that same approach the only one I could even find who commented on this Times of the Gentiles is Tertullian volume 3 page 560 he says Jerusalem was to be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles would be fulfilled Meaning, of course, those who were to be chosen of God and gathered in with the remnant of Israel. Doesn't really shed a, a whole lot of light on it. And again, it's not surprising. The scriptures don't give us anything to uh, really explain it, and, and the early church didn't venture to speculate. But where then we would really get any idea of a return of Israel to God in, in whole or in part would basically be from the chapter, chapter 11 of Romans. I, I don't think there's any other place in the New Testament that uh, uh, any of us would get such an idea. I'm not going to read every verse of Romans, but I'm, I'm going to read a, a good part of it. And let's see what he actually says. And we'll read uh, from one of the early Christian writers on it. I'm going to start with Romans chapter 11, verse 1, and read the first five verses. Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Okay, let's just stop there. Now, reading just that part, it might sound like, Oh, so all of this isn't true of God rejecting Israel. But we've read such plain passages from Scripture that tell us the kingdom was taken away from them. So either we have a contradiction in Scripture, or maybe we just need to read a little further and let Paul explain what he's meaning. Okay, he says God hasn't cast them away. How do we know he hasn't cast them away? He says, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? This is God talking. I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul says, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Okay, so he says if God had cast them out, that would mean that 
nobody from Israel would receive the promise. But he says, no, that hasn't happened. There is a remnant that has been saved according to the election of grace. So he, he explains right there what he means. He's not saying God has not rejected fleshly Israel as his people or raised up another Israel. He hasn't said that at all because we, I previously read to you from earlier chapters of Roman where he explains not everyone of Israel is really of Israel. And he is a Jew who is one inwardly, not one outwardly. So he explains all of that. But he's saying now if none of the Israelites, if none of the Jews had believed, if none of them were allowed to come in, then that would mean God had cast off his people. And he hasn't done that. That part of the Israel of God is made up of a remnant of Jews. All right? He says in verse 7, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So again, there's a remnant that has believed. All right? So again, nothing that contradicts anything that we've said or that makes any promises of the future. All right, now let's go down to verse 15. Talking about the fleshly Jews, he says, For if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So he said that the offer was extended to the Gentiles because the ones who were first given the invitation rejected it. I mean, that's right from Jesus' parable of the wedding feast. He says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and the root is holy, so are the branches. Or, or rather, if the root is holy, so are the branches. He says, and if some of the branches were broken off, those would be fleshly Jews, and you, talking to Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. All right, he says, okay, now, God didn't create a new tree. Again, showing he had not cast off Israel. It's the same rootstock that started with Abraham and went through Isaac and Joseph, uh, rather Jacob or Israel, through Moses, through David, the whole line. That we Gentiles have to be grafted into that. He, he hasn't started some, something new. We're grafted into there, which also shows that we are the real Israel of God those of us who have been grafted in, Jew or Gentile alike. All right. And we should not get puffy about it and start thinking ourselves superior to the fleshly Jews. He says, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. We got grafted into their tree, not vice versa. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. So, just like they got broken off, we can get broken off too. We better not get haughty. He says, therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Very strong passage against eternal security, isn't it? 
that just as the Jews were cut off, the individual branches, those of us who were grafted in can get cut right back out again. So we should never think that we've been saved in a way that we can't fall before the end of our life. Okay, again, nothing, nothing new. This is very consistent with what we've been saying, that there is one Israel of God, and that consists of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, and we're all alike the heirs of Abraham. If not, he wouldn't say we were grafted into that rootstock. He'd say there was a second olive tree, but that's not what he has said. Okay. Okay, then verse 23, he says, And they also, talking about the Jews, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So they have not been rejected in such a way that they can't repent and come back. So God is still merciful to them, just as he has been merciful to us. He has not blocked the way. He has not cast them off in a way that they can never come back again. But he says, if they do not continue in unbelief. He doesn't say they won't continue. He says, if they don't. Verse 24, For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Well, of course. Any Jew who's been rejected can easily be grafted back in if he repents, or, or his offspring, if they believe, can be grafted back in. If we could, as Gentiles, be grafted in and become heirs of Abraham, well, certainly his fleshly seed can as well. All right? So far, anything that contradicts anything we've said or goes against any of the other verses? No. All fits in. Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Okay, now he's going to tell us a mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. And this is it. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, this maybe is another little thread there that we saw from Jesus about the Gentile times. He says the blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It doesn't say what happens after that, just that there will be a point where the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then things may be different. Then verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. Now, going down through this whole chapter 11 of Romans, as I pointed out, there's nothing new, nothing different, nothing that contradicts anything that we've read about the rejection of Israel, he explains that their rejection doesn't mean, number one, that there's not even a remnant of them left. And he shows that the fact that there is a remnant shows that God has not completely cast them off. And number two, it doesn't mean that the invitation has been taken away from them, that they can't repent and come back to Christ the same way that we Gentiles can repent and come to Christ. So the only thing new is when he says that there, uh, the blindness, he says, is on Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. doesn't explain anything more in that passage what's going to happen next. But then verse 26, And so all Israel... 
quoting from Scripture. Now he says, Gentiles has come in. It doesn't say what happens after 6. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. Now, going down through this whole chapter 11, as I pointed out, I'm off. And number two, it doesn't mean that the invitation has been taken away from them. It says that there, uh, the blindness, blindness, he says, so all Israel will be saved as it is written. Now, some interpret this that, okay, that means all Jews are going to get saved. Now, does that mean every Jew who has lived up until now, up until the, the second coming of Christ? It wouldn't seem like the verse could possibly mean that. Because we have very direct words from Jesus himself that seems to indicate that many of them, the ones in his day, were not going to have eternal life. I mean, look at Matthew 11, 21 and 22. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, those were Phoenician cities, in the day of judgment than for you. Doesn't sound like to me that they're assured of salvation. And again, chapter 12, verses 39 and 41, he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He refers to them as an evil and adulterous generation. Then he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So he said those Gentiles in Nineveh would rise up and condemn that generation of, of Jews. He told the apostles that when they went to a city, and he sent them only to the cities of, of Israel. He said, if you go to a city and they don't accept you, dust, uh, shake the dust off your sandals, he said, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, which are examples in the Bible of among the most wicked humans that have ever lived. He said, it will be more tolerable for them on Judgment Day than for those Israelites in that city. So I think we can reject that as a reasonable interpretation of, of that verse. If that's the case, then it would seem like we'd have to throw out so much of Scripture if God is going to save even those who don't believe, even those who openly rejected Jesus Christ, that they can be saved anyway. Now, another possible explanation, one that's widely believed, is that at the second coming of Christ, or sometime before the second coming of Christ, there's going to be a sudden change where the whole nation of Israel, the ones living at that time, or at least perhaps the majority of them, or a large part of them, are going to, to come to Jesus Christ. That's certainly a, a possibility. Paul doesn't go on to explain it. You can read the verses after that, and he just says that the... Uh, election of, of God is unchangeable, but the election had nothing to do with every Israelite being saved. I mean, salvation is still going to be through the Jews. We're still having to be grafted into the rootstock of Abraham. 
We have to become Jews in order to be saved. But no further explanation is given. Well, we're about out of time tonight. I'm going to just kind of leave you dangling. Tomorrow night, I want to give you a, a possible explanation that I think fits all of the verses that we've just read. Hi, I'm David Berceau, and tonight we're going to be continuing our discussion of what the early Christians believed about Israel. Now, last night we said there were three points in their belief about Israel. One, that the fleshly nation of Israel was rejected by God, that the kingdom was taken away from them. And we saw that very clear in their writings and we saw that the scriptures say the same thing now in rejecting the jews that does not mean that god permanently cast them off that none of them would be saved that uh, he was not going to deal with them ever again number two we saw that they believe that all who believe in jesus christ jew or gentile make up the Israel of God. Now, there's not two Israels that God is dealing with. There's only one. And that is the olive tree with the rootstock of Abraham. And it was onto that tree that the Gentiles had to be grafted in. And then we saw that Paul said that it was definitely allowable that God could graft back in the natural branches, the Jews, who had been lopped off. And so that brings us to point three, that the scriptures indicate that sometime in the future, maybe right before the very end, that the blindness of the Jews would be removed, that there would be a turning to God at that time. And that's as far as we got, and we discussed what does that mean? Does that mean that Everyone who's ever been a Jew, ever been an Israelite through all the centuries would be saved. And after reading the statements of Jesus, that it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those Jewish cities that rejected the witness of his disciples, it doesn't seem like that interpretation is very likely. <clears throat> so I told you tonight I would share with you my understanding of what I think Paul is saying there. Now, it is certainly possible that there will, will be a sudden or mass conversion of the Jews. And it's very likely that some of the early Christians held to that view, many, perhaps may, uh, most of them did. But we don't know. As, as I told you, they, there's a couple of times that verse is cited, but no real explanation ever given of, of what they thought about it. <clears throat> and my guess on that is, as it is in so many situations, if the scriptures don't elaborate, they don't try to elaborate either beyond what the scriptures say. Now, I think Paul is saying something different than that all the Jews living at, at a given time when the Gentile times are over would all suddenly be converted. Again, that's definitely a possibility. 
But I hear Paul saying something different. Let me share that with you. I read to you yesterday from Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where he said, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. So he said that the name Jew no longer applies to people who are just genetic descendants of Abraham, who outwardly was living by the law, had a physical circumcision, but rather he is a Jew who is one inwardly, who shares the same faith of Abraham. And we read yesterday from Revelation where Jesus refers to the Jews who were persecuting the Christians as a synagogue of Satan. He says they say they are Jews, but they are not. And so Paul introduces to us the concept of the Israel of God made up of both Jews and Gentiles. For example, Romans 9, verses 6 and 7, he says, They are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. <clears throat> so just because somebody, again, is a fleshly Israelite does not make them of Israel or constitute the Israel of, of God. In other words, throughout Romans, he uses the term Israel in two senses. One, to mean uh, the fleshly descendants of Abraham. And number two, to refer to the heirs of the promise of Abraham, the children of Abraham that were raised up from stone, so to speak, from among the Gentiles and from among the remnant of the Jews. And then, again, going through Romans, what, like I said, I think we, we have to read the whole book. We can't take one verse and jump to a conclusion. Then we come to Paul's description of the stalk, the uh, root trunk of the olive tree. And he says that Gentile branches from the wild olive, so to speak, have been grafted onto that stalk. So they're not something over here. God is, is dealing with the Gentiles, and uh, that's a whole other thing. And over here, he's dealing with the uh, Jews in, in a whole different way. No, there, there's one olive tree, and the Gentiles have to become Jews, so to speak. They have to become heirs of Abraham in order to be saved. They have to be grafted in to that trunk. That's not going to change. And he says that uh, some Jews also are grafted back on. He said just because they've been broken off doesn't mean that God can't graft them back on. After all, if he can graft Gentiles to the rootstock of Abraham, he can certainly graft uh, Jews back onto it. Now this tree, this olive tree that he talks about, that will have branches that are Jewish and branches that are Gentiles, but all connected to the stock of Abraham, that tree will not be complete until the fullness of all the Gentiles have been grafted onto it. It's not complete right now. There are still Gentiles being converted to Jesus Christ, and, and they're still being grafted onto the tree. So the tree's not finished yet. And he says, once the fullness of the Gentiles is in, then uh, there, the, the blinding of the Jews 
is not permanent. And so he indicates that Jews will be grafted back on in, in a greater percentage than what, what we have seen through the centuries. And then finally, the tree isn't totally complete until all of the apostate and faithless branches have been pruned off. And then we finally are finished. We have the olive tree. And when that's done, the tree is complete. Israel is complete. And the whole tree with its Jewish and Gentile branches will be saved. And so this is what I see Paul saying after explaining all of that. He then concludes, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. See, all Israel are the Gentiles and the natural uh, Israelites. And all Israel will be saved because that whole olive tree is going to be saved. Everybody grafted in to the same root stock. Notice Paul's use of that transition word, so. The Greek word there is hautos, which is usually translated thus rather than so. But either way, it refers back to something that's just been said. Okay, what has he just said? He's just gone through describing that olive tree and that the Gentile branches are grafted uh, into there. And he, go, he just got through saying that the blindness that's happened in part to fleshly Israel uh, until the fullness of the Gentiles uh, has come in. And so he says, therefore, all Israel will be saved. All Israel meaning the, the fullness of the Gentiles and the Jews who come in afterwards or who have come in during the interim centuries. Now, again, that's what I'm hearing Paul saying. But since the early church is essentially silent on this passage, I'm not representing this as being their view. It's consistent with what they, they believed about Israel, but I don't know if that's exactly how they understood it. I'm going to guess you would have had a difference of viewpoint among them. The church had no dogma or official understanding on that, on that passage. But regardless of what Paul is talking about there, what he means by that, there's a very important thing we need to remember. We're still in the period waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. And it would seem that we still have quite a ways to go in that matter because tens of thousands of Gentiles are making a profession of faith in Christ every year. I mean, they're still flocking in. So the tree is not, not complete. <clears throat> so we're not to point three yet. That is still sometime in the future, and it may be centuries away. I know we all have a common expectation. We know we're living in the last days, but they were living in the last days back there in the times of the apostles, that the apostles referred to their time as the last days. <clears throat> and every single generation of Christians through all of these centuries has believed that the end would probably come in their lifetime. And we should be vigilant. We should be ready for the end to come in our lifetime. But we don't know. God hasn't given us a timetable. <clears throat> and when we start imagining that the end is, is tomorrow, when maybe it's many generations off, sometimes we become lax. We jump ahead of what God is doing. 
The other thing we have to take note of is that the spiritual state of fleshly Jews today is far worse than it was when Paul wrote Romans. Now, most Bible scholars feel that when Romans was written, that the Jews made up the majority of the New Testament church. Now, I would disagree with that assessment, just based, if nothing else, on what Paul says there in Romans. If the Jews were the majority, then it seems strange that he would talk that way, that the Jews were blind, that it's the Gentiles who are receiving salvation, not, not the Jews. But regardless, if they weren't the majority, they were still a, a very significant, uh, large minority of the church. But what about today? Well, today, fleshly Jews would make up less than 1% of all Christians. So the trend hasn't been one of moving for the Jews to become more open for, for their uh, hearts to be softening. It's been the other way around, that, that as a people, they have been moving further and further away from, from Christ. And today, the vast majority of Jews around the world don't even believe the scriptures. They don't believe the Old Testament is God's word. Now, in Jesus' day, they would have all believed that. So, like I say, they have been moving away from, from God. And yet, many Christians today act like we're already to point number three, that there's no urgent need to bring Jews to Christ because, oh, they're all going to be saved, that, uh, yeah, that's, that's just about, about over with. In fact, some go so far as to teach uh, or at least they act like the, the Jews are somehow automatically saved without even having to believe in Christ, that they can be saved through the Old Covenant. And yet the scriptures are so plain that the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. Now Paul mentions that God's election remains unchanged. But what was that election that God made towards the descendants of Abraham? Well, it was this. He told Abraham, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That was the promise. That was the election. That it would be uh, through the seed of Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I mean, from the very beginning, that promise included we Gentiles. <clears throat> His promise to Abraham was not that all of Abraham's descendants would receive eternal life. That was not the election that was made. The election was made that it would be through the seed of Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed. And that's eternal. That has not changed and it never will change. It's always going to be that Gentiles have to be grafted on to the root trunk of Abraham. God has not cast out that covenant. He has not uh, done away with, with any of that. That is permanent and binding, unchanging. But Paul does not say that that election means that all Jews will be saved. Well, finally, <clears throat> before leaving Romans, let me ask you this. Does Paul say anywhere in Romans or in any of his other letters about the kingdom being restored to the fleshly Jews? No, he doesn't. Read through that whole book, scour it. He says nothing like that. Does he say that the Jews will return to Palestine? 
to the land originally promised to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No, Paul says nothing about that in Romans. He says nothing about it in any of his letters. There's no promise at all in the New Testament about that. And yet so many Christians jump into reading all kinds of things that aren't there. I mean, they take that one passage in Romans, and pretty soon they expand it to uh, the kingdom is going to be returned to the Jews, they're going to rebuild their temple, they're going to do all these, these sort of things that Paul says nothing about. Jesus says nothing about. For any, anything concerning that, we're going to have to go back to the Old Testament, and that's what we're going to do in a minute. But I say let's, let's keep it clear you know, what is said where. The New Testament makes no such promise. And so we're going to have to go to the Old Testament to see if there's a promise made there. And in a minute, we're going to talk about the Old Testament prophecies. But before doing that, there's one more thing I want to mention. And that is, if the early Christian view of Israel sounds strange to you, it's only because of some fairly modern teaching that came into the church beginning in the mid to late 1800s. The historic teaching of the Christian church through all the centuries up until then is the view that I've just presented to you, the view held by the early Christians. I mean, all the reformers held to this historic view. For example, let me read to you a quote from Martin Luther. He said, when Christ came and found the people gathered out of both Israel and Judah and out of all lands so that the land was full, he began the new order and established the promised new covenant and did it exactly in the same physical land of Canaan and at the same physical Jerusalem as had been promised, where they had been brought back out of all lands. And although they did not want this covenant or rather would not accept it, it has nevertheless remained an everlasting covenant, not only at Jerusalem and in that land, but it broke out from there into all the four corners of the world. The Jews hold fast to the name of Israel and claim that they alone are Israel and we are Gentiles. And this is true so far as the first part of the prophecy and the old covenant of Moses are concerned, though this has long since been fulfilled. But according to the second part of the prophecy and the new covenant, they are no longer Israel. For all things are to be new and Israel too must become new. And they alone are the true Israel who have accepted the new covenant. The Anabaptists held to this same view. I'm going to read to you from Menno Simons. He said, to understand it as having reference to the physical children of David is contrary to the epistle of Paul to the Romans. For there Paul says, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall your seed be called. That is, they who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Therefore, we should not take this seed as referring to the physical children, but to the spiritual seed of which it is written. When my servant shall have given his life as a sacrifice, then he shall have seed and live long. This seed are all the true children of God who are born again, not a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. It's from his work entitled The Blasphemy of John of Leiden. 
John Calvin held to this view. So did John Wesley. For example, Wesley wrote an extensive work on how the Jews, whom he refers to as the ancient church of God, had been hard of heart and disobedient to God. He then goes on to say, such is the general account which the scriptures give of the Jews, the ancient church of God. And all these things were written for our instruction, who are now the visible church of the God of Israel. And that's from his appeal to man of reason and religion. So the early Christian view that I've shared with you, it's not only their view, it was the view of all Christians after that, until, like I say, the, the mid to late 1800s. Okay, having shared that with you, let's talk about Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel. Today, most evangelical Christians are convinced that the Bible says that the Jews would return to their homeland and be reestablished as a nation, and that the kingdom will be turned back to them and that they will be God's nation once again. Now, you won't find anything in the New Testament that says any of that. You'll definitely have to go to, to the Old Testament to try to prove the Bible says that. But this is really tricky because prophetic language is anything but clear. It's nearly always open to several possible interpretations. Now, if you're going to say that the Old Testament prophecies that Israel would return back to the promised land, please don't quote to me from Isaiah or Jeremiah, because those books were written either before or right at the time that Judah went into captivity to Babylon. The 12 tribe kingdom had, or 10 tribe rather, had already been previously led captive by the Assyrians. Yet those prophets, that is Isaiah and Jeremiah and many of the minor prophets, prophesied that Israel would be brought back from many nations to the promised land. But that happened. The Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell us how it was fulfilled. And you know, as Martin Luther pointed out, when Jesus came to earth and preached, the people of Israel were there in the promised land, not all of them, but I mean, the land was populated by, by Israelites. It had come true, where it had been desolate there during their 70 years of captivity and, and uh, even longer for the 10 tribe kingdoms. So those prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah had an obvious fulfillment. So please don't quote them to me as proving that there would be a future fulfillment in the nation of Israel after the time of Christ. I'm not saying it's impossible that it could have that. I'm just saying you can't use those prophecies to prove that point since more likely they apply to what already took place. They were already fulfilled. But I do want to look at three prophecies that persons have quoted to me. Old Testament prophesies that Jews will return to the promised land and once more become God's earthly nation. The first one that I've uh, heard quoted a lot is Daniel 9 verses 24 through 27. Let me read that passage to you. This is from the New King James. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. 
Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, the first time that I heard of this passage from Daniel, supposedly predicting that the Jews would return to their homeland and be reestablished as a nation, was when I was a member of a Bible church, and we were going through a book entitled Major Bible Themes. It was at a, a men's Bible study that we were having once a week with the pastor. And that book says this concerning this prophecy in Daniel. One of the major prophecies given through Daniel is recorded in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Here, according to the information given by the angel Gabriel to Daniel, 70 weeks or 70 sevens, and he put in parentheses 490 years, were to comprise Israel's future history. Daniel was told, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. The prophecy was to begin with the command to restore and to build Jerusalem and 483 years of the total of 490 years were to be fulfilled before Messiah the Prince would come. While I'm still reading from the book, while scholars have differed greatly in their interpretation of this passage, probably the best view is to begin this period of 490 years with the time of Nehemiah's reconstruction of Jerusalem in 445 BC. It would then culminate about AD 32, approximately the time when Christ died on the cross. Recent scholarship has placed the death of Christ as late as 33 AD, although most interpreters dated AD 30 or earlier. According to Daniel's prophecy, after the Messiah himself was to be cut off, which would occur after the 483 years, but apparently before the last seven years of the prophecy, Jerusalem itself would be destroyed. This historically was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. It is implied in Daniel's prophecy that there is a considerable period between the end of the 483 years, or the 69 weeks, and the beginning of the last seven years, or 70th week, as it includes two events separated by 40 years. The last week was to be characterized by a covenant apparently made with a future prince related to the people who destroyed the city. As the people who destroyed the city of Jerusalem were Romans, the prince that shall come will apparently be a ruler of a revived Roman Empire. Many interpreters view this as still a future event which will occur after the church has been raptured. 
This future ruler will make a seven-year covenant with the people of Israel described in Daniel 9.27. The covenant will be broken in the middle of the week, and the last three and one-half years will be a time of persecution and trial for Israel. This period is the subject of extended prophecy in Revelation 6-18 and ends at the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19. Of special interest is the prediction that this future ruler will cause sacrifice and oblation to cease and will make the temple desolate. This implies a future temple in Jerusalem and a resumption of the sacrificial system of Moses by Orthodox Jews in the period preceding the second coming of Christ. It is significant that the first 483 years have been literally fulfilled. Well, I won't read any further. My first thought when I read that passage in the book years and years ago was, you've got to be kidding. I, I couldn't believe that anybody would make such a claim. That passage in Daniel talks about a renewed Israel? The name Israel is not even mentioned anywhere in that passage. Furthermore, it says 70 weeks, not 490 years. The book says, well, the first part was fulfilled literally, and so the, the last part will have to be fulfilled literally. But the whole claim was, no, it wasn't literally 70 weeks. It was actually 70 weeks of years which is not what Daniel said. So if it's 70 weeks of years, then the prophecy is not fulfilled literally, is it? Secondly, it says the city would be destroyed by a flood. It was not a flood that destroyed Jerusalem. It was the Roman armies. So again, that was figurative or symbolic, not literal. And the book says, well, it's implied that the last half of the uh, 70 weeks, uh, that there's a big gap in the middle of that week. Really? Does that passage say anything about a, a gap? Does it say there's two periods of 40 years between there? That's nowhere in the passage whatsoever. doesn't even say who it is. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. You know, I, I've read very scholarly books that detail how this was all fulfilled in the time of the Maccabees, the time of uh, Antiochus, the Greek ruler, and how all the dates fit and all that. I've read other very scholarly presentations that show how all of this was fulfilled in, in Jesus Christ. And, and uh, the end of offering is when he died with his, sacri his sacrifice, the uh, curtain in the temple was, was ripped in half and no longer were sacrifices valid being made in the temple. And then it culminated in the... Uh, destruction of, of Jerusalem. So to say this proves that by reading this, then it, this means there has to be another Israel and, and they have to have a government and, and all of this and they're going to return to, they're going to rebuild the temple and turn back to uh, the sacrificial system. I mean, none of that is in there. You're inventing all of this and then putting it out like this is fact. I mean, any prophecy, you take any passage in Daniel, in uh, Revelation and, and maybe anybody's guess is as good as the, as the next person. I'm not saying that all of this is impossible. I'm just saying none of that is there. See, the issue is we know that fleshly Jews are back in the land of Palestine and 
that the city of Jerusalem is under the Israeli government right now. I mean, we all know that. The question is, are they there because of Bible prophecies being fulfilled, or are they there in unbelief, in rebellion against God? That's the question, and, and the book of Daniel, certainly, nobody reading that would, would uh, I think, honestly come away with the view that, oh, this shows that Israel is going to be reestablished in the latter times because it doesn't say anything about that. You already start with the conclusion, oh, Israel has, has regathered. Aha, look at this prophecy, and you make the prophecy fit the situation when it's not there at all. All right, let's move on to the next one. Next one is Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 12. Let me read that to you. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city will, shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azale. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all of the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. The people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem excuse me, shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. Again, that's Zechariah 14. I've read a number of evangelical books, tracts, and magazine articles in which the authors state categorically that that prophecy is going to be fulfilled very literally and it's going to be fulfilled in the, the modern Jewish nation, the Israelis of today. But is that necessarily the case? I've gone through the early Christian writings to see what they would have to say about this passage, and not surprisingly, it's virtually not quoted there. The early Christians were a whole lot less apt to speculate about Bible prophecies than Christians are today. As one of them said, prophecy is best fulfilled, excuse me, best understood 
once it has been fulfilled. Now Tertullian mentions this briefly in one of his writings and, and uh, you'll be surprised at his application. He's quoting from the New Testament. He says, in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, talking about Jesus. And Tertullian says, just as it had been foretold by Hosea, in my house they found me and there I spoke with them. Still reading from Tertullian. But at night he went out to the Mount of Olives. For thus had Zechariah pointed out, and his feet shall stand in that day on the Mount of Olives. So he understood that to be something fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now your first response may be, well that's an absurd interpretation. He's given a highly figurative rather than a, a literal interpretation of, of the prophecy. He's acting like it was fulfilled in Jesus' day instead of the end times. Now I don't know if Tertullian's take on that um, passage was a general view of the early Christians. I doubt there was a uniform view because like I say the church was very slow to speculate on things that God has not revealed to us. I do know this, however, that the passage immediately preceding the one that I, I read to you was fulfilled in Jesus' day. It says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones, and it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it." So the, the passages just immediately before this, and again, Zechariah was not divided into chapters and verses. That's something that's been done you know, much, much later. So I mean, it's all one passage there in Zechariah, and that passage we know from the New Testament was talking about Jesus. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Scriptures say this was fulfilled when Jesus was arrested and his apostles fled. So it's, no, it's not absurd to understand this whole passage to be dealing in, the, in that time because the part that we know was talking about Jesus says that two-thirds uh, of the ones in the land shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. What was that? How was that fulfilled? I can't even venture a guess as to what that is uh, talking about. Certainly nothing that, that happened that we are aware of right in, in uh, Jesus' time. So Old Testament prophecies cannot always, in fact rarely, can be looked at to be fulfilled exactly literally. Part of it will be literal and part of it won't. I mean even the part here about Jesus, there wasn't a shepherd or sheep being scattered. We understand, oh, well, that's figurative. That's talking about a man, and the sheep are talking about uh, the apostles. But see, literally, it says the shepherd and, and the sheep. It's been said that the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. How many people correctly predicted what the Messiah would be like when he came? The answer is, Nobody, not one single person was able to accurately figure out in advance what the Messiah would be like when he came. And nobody figured out that there would be two appearances of the Messiah. Jesus' disciples followed him 
because they saw the evidence in him that he was sent by God. Not because they had studied all the Old Testament prophecies and had everything figured out. In, in fact, the religiously educated Jewish religious leaders who had studied all of the Old Testament prophecies over and over were quite certain that Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah. And so they stumbled over Jesus because they thought they had all of the Old Testament prophecies all figured out. The Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament are clear to you and I now only because the Holy Spirit has revealed to us their fulfillment in the pages of the New Testament. But before then, they weren't clear to anybody. Luke chapter 24, verse 40, 45 tells us that after Jesus was resurrected and he met with his apostles, it says, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he explained to them how the Messiah was to suffer and, and would uh, be killed. Before then, even having spent three years with Jesus Christ himself, they still didn't understand those prophecies. In fact, unless the Holy Spirit had revealed to us in the New Testament and pointed out how these prophecies were fulfilled, I don't think any of us would even recognize some of them as being prophecies. For example, Matthew tells us, <clears throat> Matthew 2.15, it says, When he arose, talking about Joseph, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that seems straightforward enough. Have you ever gone, though, uh, back to Hosea to read what Hosea says there that uh, Matthew's quoting from? This is what it says. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from the from there, they sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. Now, if Matthew had not quoted that passage, would any of us have recognized that that was a prophecy about the Messiah? I mean, it seems to be obviously talking about the nation of, of Israel. I mean, did Jesus go after uh, other gods and carved Im burned incense to carved images? See, it's hard to even understand Old Testament prophecy and, and, and the way that it's fulfilled because this is different from the way you and I are used to thinking prophecies were fulfilled. I don't think any of us would even recognize some of them as being prophecies. For example, Matthew tells us, <clears throat> Matthew 2.15, it says, When he arose, talking about Joseph, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that seems straightforward enough. Have you ever gone, though, uh, back to Hosea to read what Hosea says there that uh, Matthew's quoting from. This is what it says. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from, the, from there. 
They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. Now, if Matthew had not quoted that passage, would any of us have recognized that that was a prophecy about the Messiah? I mean, it seems to be obviously talking about the nation of, of Israel. I mean, did Jesus go after uh, other gods and carved Im burned incense to carved images? See, it's hard to even understand Old Testament prophecy and, and, and the way that it's fulfilled because this is different from the way you and I are used to thinking. My point is that it's very difficult to understand all of the prophecies made in the Old Testament. As I said, quite often they were fulfilled in a very different way than you and I would expect. For example, look at Malachi 4, verse 5, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, it says there that Elijah the prophet would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It doesn't say there would be a prophet like Elijah or in the spirit of Elijah. It says Elijah would come. But look at how it was fulfilled. Again in Matthew, Matthew 11, 13, and 14, Jesus said this, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you were willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, he wasn't saying that John the Baptist was Elijah reincarnated, but that was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Certainly we would have expected a very different fulfillment Let's look at another messianic prophecy, Isaiah 7, 14 through 17. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a song, behold, a sign rather, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now we all recognize that as being fulfilled in Jesus. But keep reading, curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Well, now the very first part of that was literally fulfilled, the virgin conceiving and bearing a son. But was his name called Emmanuel? No, his name was called Jesus. You can read all four Gospels. No one ever addressed him as Emmanuel. I mean, we know what Emmanuel means, God with us. And so we can see how, oh, that was fulfilled, but not in the way that you would expect reading that. You would be looking for a man named Emmanuel. And you find a man named Jesus, you'd say, oh, no, that can't be it, because the prophecy says that name will be called Emmanuel. It was fulfilled very differently than what we would have expected. It's easy to see it now, but it wouldn't have been before it was fulfilled. Did the scripture say anything about Jesus eating curds and honey? What about this part about the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings? What is that? How was that fulfilled? And did the Lord bring the king of Assyria upon the, the Jews and Israelites? I mean, if this is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, which we know it was, how was that fulfilled? It isn't clear at all. 
And that's the thing we should learn. You can't take Old Testament prophecies and, and go down them like a checklist and, yep, that's fulfilled. And let me check this next point off. Aha, uh -huh, this little detail, it says this. Okay, check that off. Yep. It's not like that at all. If we're wise, we will learn from the lessons of history. And we look, when we look at the fulfillment of prophecies in Jesus' day that have been pointed out to us by the Holy Spirit, we should immediately realize that they were fulfilled so often in ways that we would not expect. That there were literal parts of the prophecy, or I should say parts of the prophecy were fulfilled in a very literal way, and other parts were fulfilled in a very symbolic or figurative way. So going back to the prophecy of Zechariah that I read to you, you know, the truth is we don't know whether that prophecy is something in the future or whether it was fulfilled long, long ago. Maybe it's talking about events that happened during the time of the Maccabees when the Grecian ruler Antiochus had tried to stamp out uh, Judaism and a small band of very brave, very dedicated uh, Jews overthrew their Greek conquerors, even though Greece was the world power of that day. See, maybe that's talking about things that, that, that happened back then. Or maybe as Tertullian thought, it was fulfilled in Jesus' earthly ministry and in the establishment of his kingdom. Maybe all of that about Israel and Jerusalem is talking about the Israel of God. It's talking about the, the Jerusalem above that, that Paul tells us about. I mean, we know for certain that part of that prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus' day because the scriptures tell us that. Maybe these are events, as a lot of people think, that are going to be fulfilled before Jesus comes back. On the other hand, maybe these are things that are going to be fulfilled way into the millennium in ways that we don't even vaguely comprehend right, right now. The answer is, we simply do not know. But we have no grounds for taking the prophecy there of Zechariah and treating it as though it's predicting all these specific events that are going to happen with the present-day state of Israel, since so far none of the things that Zechariah talks about have been fulfilled in that state of Israel. Well, one last one I want to look at that's been quoted to me as, as showing that uh, God is predicting that the, the Jew, God had predicted that the Jews would be brought back to their land and not when they were returned to their land after the fall of Babylon, but something after the time of Jesus. This is Joel chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Now this is a fairly long passage, so I'm not going to read it all since it's not material to our discussion. But let me just read you a few key excerpts. It says, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a, a reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. 
and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. Now, if I tell you that the early Christians believed that this prophecy of Joel had already been fulfilled in Jesus' day, I imagine many of you will probably roll your eyes and think to yourselves, oh no, here comes another absurd interpretation. But what if I tell you that the Holy Spirit has said that this prophecy was already fulfilled in Jesus' day? Well, he has. Because the very next sentence of Joel says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Now, I think all of you recognize that passage because Peter quoted it on the day of Pentecost and said that it was being fulfilled that very day. And yet Joel in his prophecy says that this pouring out of the Spirit would occur afterwards, after what he had already prophesied concerning Israel returning to the land and that his people would never be put to shame. So I think obviously the fulfillment applies largely or maybe totally to the Israel of God because the fleshly nation of Israel was indeed put to shame when Roman armies destroyed Jerusalem. Well, let's move on to modern Israel. What about the modern nation of Israel? Does its existence show that the end is right around the corner? Does it show that the things the Bible had prophesied are coming true right now in front of our own eyes? Well, do the scriptures prophesy that after the Romans would destroy Jerusalem, that sometime later the Jews would return to Palestine and create their nation anew there in Palestine? Well, let's think about the New Testament. Is there any prophecy in the New Testament which does prophesy the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70? Is there anywhere there a, a prophecy about the Jews being restored to their land after the destruction of Jerusalem? No, there's not one single prophecy in the New Testament to that effect. Is there any specific Old Testament prophecy that specifically speaks about the Jews after the period of Roman dominion that says that they would return to their land afterwards? No, there's no Old Testament prophecy like that either. What we have are passages like the one that I read to you above from Zechariah that we don't know for sure about. May have been fulfilled in the Israel of God. May have been fulfilled in fleshly Israel before the time of, of Jesus. May be something that's going to happen in the millennium. But there's no clear prophecy that in this life, in this world, before the second coming of Jesus, that the Jews would be restored to their land. And I can say something absolutely, and that is there is no prophecy anywhere in Scripture 
that says that God would bring restoration to the Jews while they still remained hard-hearted and unrepentant of their sins. God has never worked that way in the past. Think about when he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. It was only after they turned to him and repented and prayed and prayed. And yet even after bringing them out of Egypt, when they acted in disobedience, he, he let them die there in the wilderness. What about during the period of Judges? When they were unfaithful, did he fight their battles for them? No. It was only when they were faithful that God worked on behalf of his people and did miracles on their behalf. The same way, when did he bring them back to Israel, to the land of Israel from Babylon? Was it when they were still worshiping idols and those sort of things? No. It was after they had totally repented of all of the wicked things they had done and called upon God that in his mercy he restored them to the land. And that hasn't been the history of the modern nation of Israel. I want to talk to you a little bit about the founding of, of Israel and the political movement known as Zionism that, that led to the uh, creation of the state of Israel. To the shame of professing Christians, what spurred the eventual establishment of the modern state of Israel, what spurred the Zionist movement, was persecution from European governments, particularly Russia and Eastern European governments, all of which claimed to be Christian. And what a terrible thing that what prompted the Jews to want to get to their own land was to escape the persecution from professing Christians. But the founder of the political Zionist movement, which eventually led to the creation of Israel, was a secular Jew named Theodore Herzl, who felt that Jews in Europe, he lived in Eastern Europe, he felt that the Jewish Europeans would never be able to have equal civil rights with Christians. So it was he who came up with the idea of gathering the scattered Jews together from all over Europe and other parts of the world and creating a state of their own. His motives were purely political and social. They were not religious. He was a secular Jew who didn't even believe in the scriptures. Now, that's what, this was in the late 1800s. And he was joined by David, David Ben-Gurion, who was another secular Jew. And these were the two prime leaders of the movement that, that brought about the state of Israel. So from the very start, the Zionist movement was secular, not spiritual. It was not led by any Jews who had repented of their unbelief and turned their hearts back to God. It was not even led by religious Jews still clinging to the Old Testament, still in unbelief, in rejection of God's Messiah. Now, something else you need to realize is that from the very beginning, the Jewish leaders of the Zionist movement were supported and helped by fundamentalist Christians who had embraced what was then very new theology, the theology that today is known as premillennialism. And part of this theology was that God would restore the Israelites to their land and uh, restore them as a nation, and they would be his people again. And so the belief in that went hand in hand with the secular Zionist movement that was wanting to create the state but not with any thought of God. For example, uh, 
A fundamentalist evangelist named William Blackstone in the late 1800s vocally advocated the reestablishment of a Jewish state in the ancient land of Palestine. In fact, in 1891, Blackstone presented what is known as the Blackstone Petition. It was signed by 413 prominent Christian and Jewish leaders urging the United States to give Palestine to the Jews. Now, at that time, Palestine was part of the Turkish Empire, but that empire was in a state of decay. So the thought was a world power like the United States, which was just emerging into the world scene, could just take that land away and give it to the Jews. Well, the United States State Department circulated the Blackstone Petition. I mean, you can read about this in secular history books to various European uh, powers. And the thought was pure and simple. Europe and the U.S. were strong enough to simply take Palestine away from the Turks and give it to the Jews. Now, all of this was brewing, all of this was being planned when World War I broke out. And uh, Turkey was one of the powers that fought in World War I, but they were on the losing side. And the victorious superpowers like the U.S. and Britain at the end of World War I took Palestine away from Turkey, and Britain was given control of it. In fact, it was turned over to the uh, League of Nations who gave the mandate to, to Britain to rule over Palestine. Well, with this, of course, both the Jewish Zionists and the Christian fundamentalists lobbied long and hard in, in Britain and at the League of Nations to create a Jewish state in Palestine. And as a result, in 1922, the League of Nations passed legislation to create a Jewish state in the land of Palestine. And I'm going to read to you just some key excerpts uh, from it. You can, again, find this in any uh, history book dealing with this era. It says, Whereas the principal allied powers, these were the victors in World War I, have agreed for the purpose of giving effect to the provisions of Article 22 of the Covenant of the League of Nations to entrust to a mandatory selected by the said powers the administration of the territory of Palestine, which formerly belonged to the Turkish Empire, within such boundaries as may be fixed by them. And then it goes on to state how Britain had been given this mandate over Palestine, and then it, it says, the mandatory shall be responsible for placing the country under such political, administrative, and economic conditions as will secure the establishment of the Jewish prophecies were fulfilled. I don't think any of us would even recognize some of them as being prophecies. People who were living there in Palestine felt about this, I'm talking about the Palestinian people, the, the Arabs who were there. I mean, their ancestors had lived there for over a thousand years. And now what was happening is the Western powers were essentially taking their land and giving it to foreigners most of whom were Westerners. These were primarily from the United States and, and Europe. Westerners, not Eastern Jews. Well, as the Jews were flooding into Palestine, at the same time, the Jewish settlers immediately began arming themselves and drilling, preparing themselves for war. Well, Britain's mandate over Palestine expired in 1948. And as soon as it did, I mean, the day it did, the Jews immediately declared 
themselves to be a free political state, the state of Israel. And as you can guess, the surrounding Arab countries tried to prevent this, declared war on, on Israel, but they were unsuccessful. Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, was a secular Jew who didn't even believe in the scriptures. As a result, one of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish sects in Israel who was living there denounced the Israeli government in these words, saying it was a regime of blasphemers. So from the very start, start the modern nation of Israel has depended on its own human resources and upon the considerable help it has received from the West. It has not depended upon God. In fact, almost immediately after the Jews declared Israel to be an independent country, the U.S. sent $135 million in aid to Israel, even though it was just a tiny country. In fact, do you know what country, year after year, receives the most foreign aid from the United States? Well, I would have always thought it would be a poor country like maybe Sudan, where people are starving to death. But no, it's Israel. Israel receives more foreign aid year after year than any other country in the world. Last year, the United States gave $2.2 billion of economic and military aid to Israel. So there's nothing miraculous about Israel's military strength. Almost from the beginning, they've had the latest technological weapons and have had the support of Britain and the United States. Their Arab opponents have always lagged considerably behind economically and militarily. Now I know a lot of Christians think there was something miraculous about the Six-Day War back in 1967. I remember hearing it on the, on the news at the time when it was happening. But what we weren't told back there in the newscast is that it was Israel who had attacked its neighbors first. I mean, listening to the news, what was coming over here in the United States, I thought all of the Arab countries had attacked Israel, and Israel was fighting a defensive war caught by surprise. Now, it may be that the Arab countries were planning to go to war against Israel. That's what Israel claims. But what happened, regardless of whether that's true or not, is that the Israeli Air Force launched a surprise attack on Egypt, and bombed the entire fleet of Egyptian planes while they were still sitting idle on their airfields. Totally wiped out their air force before any uh, war had even started. And they made similar surprise attacks against other Arab countries. So there was nothing miraculous that the war ended in six days. They had you know, knocked out the advanced weapons that were needed by the other countries to successfully launch a war against Israel. But because a small power is successful in war, does not prove God is behind it or that there's anything miraculous taking place. Was Hitler's rapid conquest of nearly all of Europe in such a short period of time, was that miraculous? What about Japan's rapid conquest of the Far East of huge countries like China during World War II? Was, was that miraculous? I don't think any of us would claim that. In fact, one reason I think personally, that it's unlikely that modern-day Israel is a work of God is the very fact that Israel has won all of its wars. Because, you see, in the scriptures, 
God never fought for the Israelites when they were unfaithful. This was one of the ways he brought them to repentance. It was the normal way he brought them to repentance. Letting their enemies have victory over them, letting their enemies subjugate them. And more than that, even when they were faithful, God never let them depend upon their existence on their military mind. He brought a severe judgment on Israel in, in David's time, when David numbered, took a census of the Israelites so he would know how many men of war that, that he could rely upon. You remember the terrible plague that uh, God brought on Israel as a result of David's sin. Make no mistake about it, modern Israel 